Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulton. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, and someone who's deeply committed to debunking false information, especially information that is designed to scare people around food and medicine. And biotechnology is frequently in that space. It's a new technology that, to most people, that is oftentimes used to frighten others. One of the people who's been at the front line of deceiving the public through false information has been Jeffrey Smith. Now, Smith, he's a household name in the, in the uh, bogus information space. Smith has been at it for 25 years. And most of you know his website, the uh, Institute for Responsible Technology, the, or as I always think of it as the broom closet downstairs in his basement. It's not an institute. It's not a you know, think tank. It's him, a ballroom dan- room dancer and yogic flying instructor who has taken up a mantle to uh, against big corporations and really just uh, promoting organic food, organic food industry, which is fine, but you know, that's, but he does it using misinformation and fear to scare people away from good food. Now, this is something that I consider absolutely objectionable. And the reason I really go after Smith is because, uh, he, actually a couple weeks ago, he asked to be on my podcast as people reached out and I thought, this is great. I'd love to have him on as a guest. And I was excited. I accepted. I had him on the schedule. And at the last second, he declined. At the same time, he's very happy to get on anybody's podcast to extend a microphone where he can just talk and rattle on without anybody providing any critical pushback. So he looks for those podcasts. And he looks for the ones that maybe even have a scientific patina. The problem is he found one. He found one in the Finding Genius podcast, which I've listened to a couple of those episodes, especially with respect to good stuff on gene editing. And if you look at the list of podcast guests, they're generally really good there. Um, The podcast is decent. They had good guests with regard to gene editing, cancer, topics that I follow. So you can imagine how appalled I was to see that Jeffrey Smith had tricked them into letting him be a guest. And, but even worse is when I listened and heard that he was able to run with his gish gallop of garbage for an hour with no pushback. Nobody said, that's not true. Where did you hear that? Uh, in the entire interview, maybe uh, the host pushed back maybe one time. And then uh, Smith ignored the pushback and didn't even answer the question when he was asked to answer the question. So this is um, a very common in, in the way that, that Smith operates. So what I, reason, what I did today is I took that version of finding, um, uh, finding Genius and I have um, commented on Smith's discussion 
point by point because I want you to hear how he operates. I want you to hear how he deceives, how he misrepresents science, and the way in which he kind of distances himself from it by using words like, well, theoretically, or hypothetically, or um, you know, maybe, or this can do this. He makes very definitive statements, sounded like they're grounded in authority, where they're really not. Yet he always has these weasel words and weenie words where he can always back out and say, well, I never said that. But listen how he does that repeatedly throughout this interview. It's a long episode of Talking Biotech because um, uh, Brandolini's law says that it takes uh, some you know t- 10 minutes of legitimate discussion to debunk one minute of garbage. He didn't say it that uh, judiciously. He used a few other words in there. The bottom line is, is that this is a careful debunking of Smith and uh, sadly, the podcast he was able to hijack. So go ahead and listen to this particular episode. Um, and uh, I invite your your comments and feedback as always. I apologize for its length. I thought about breaking this into two or three different uh, versions or episodes, but it's best all as one. Sadly, finding geniuses also allowed on other people who claim to be experts who do not do primary research. Smith is not a researcher. Um, other, he also has had on Stephanie Seneff and some other guy who are making comments about glyphosate that are completely false. But he's now extended his forum to people who know nothing about the science that they talk about. I've written to him, the host, and said, I can't believe you did this. This guy's not credible. How could you do this? And they did not extend me even the courtesy of a reply to the email saying, could we discuss this or, you know, what did you see that bothers you? So since they're not going to be responsive, this podcast episode is my response. And I urge you to share it and tag at, at, at finding underscore genius because this podcast has legitimate science on there. And by allowing Smith and Seneff and them to be part of that cohort is extremely dangerous because it makes them look like they're actually legitimate. Now here is the interview with Jeffrey Smith. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. So today my guest is Jeffrey Smith. He's the founder and executive director of the Institute for Responsible Technology and Protect Nature Now. And uh, he's an American consumer activist an award-winning documentary film director, a best-selling author, and an internationally respected GMO activist. So the sad part is, is that this host is fooled right off the bat. He thinks Smith has some sort of uh, credentials. He has no credentials. Zero. He has, has a horrible understanding of the science. Is he internationally recognized? Maybe, but so was Al Capone and Adolf Hitler. It doesn't mean that what they did were, was good. Uh, has he won awards for his documentaries? Potentially. But winning awards from crackpot organizations that are against science is not something that they should be promoting on a scientific podcast. I ran into him because uh, he had sent me a copy for review of his book, Seeds of Deception and Genetic Roulette. Uh, very, very interesting stuff. So... 
And he, Smith has been doing this. As I mentioned before, I received a copy of uh, uh, an invitation for him to be on the Talking Biotech podcast and was happy to have him on. Unfortunately, he canceled at the last minute. He's waning in relevance as the COVID vaccine shows a beautiful example of what biotechnology can do, people are becoming more um, comfortable with the idea of what is DNA and RNA and how we use it and how we can solve problems with it. And that is Smith's worst fear. So time to get back on the circuit and start trashing good technology. Jeff, thanks for coming. Happy to be here, Richard. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. What was your interaction with you know, health and things like that. Was it, you know, did it happen at the very beginning of your career or what's, what's your, how has your career led you to this point is what I'm saying. Well, I've been kind of a chronic do-gooder working for nonprofits, also working for personal development and whatnot, and very much involved with education, communication, marketing. I have a master's in business. My mother was an educator till she was 84. My sister was a was a college professor. My brother teaches teachers how to teach. And so I'm, I feel very much involved with strategic communication. Or more likely, strategic deception. There's no question that Smith has a good gift to be able to speak to people in the language they want to hear. And that's what makes him so dangerous, is that he's even fooled a science podcast host into making him f- feel as though Smith has a certain amount of credibility. He's one of the folks who is more dangerous because of that kind of uh, ability to convince others. He has a space. He's got an empire. He's got a platform. And from that, he can say whatever he wants, and most people don't challenge him. But it's important that we do as a scientific community. So 25 years ago, I listened to a lecture by a whistleblower from the genetic engineering world who is saying they're about to introduce genetically engineered foods and there's no way we can guarantee that these foods are safe. The technology is just simply prone to side effects. They don't even test to see what those side effects are and they're about to release those foods into the food supply. And moreover, once they plant a genetically engineered plant outside, it'll cross-pollinate and become a permanent part of the gene pool with enormous number of unpredictable interactions. But that's true. Scientists don't say there's a guarantee that it's safe. All we do show is that there's unlikely a possibility of harm and no evidence of harm. And that's how scientists speak. What Smith does is he takes the conservative language of science and uses that to demonstrate that it's weak or wrong. And he does it over and over again. And we'll touch on some other examples of that later. Overall, the technology has been amazingly safe and amazingly effective. And so he was telling me information that was devastating. It was a type A, class A, serious threat for human health and the environment. And literally no one I knew knew anything about a GMO, didn't know what the word was. I never heard of it. And they were about to plant and then harvest that year genetically engineered soy and corn in Iowa where I was living. And so I started thinking about it and say, how can I help in terms of a strategic communication angle? What can I say, et cetera, that'll really make a change here? 
Now, it's important to understand Smith's background and his motivation. He came through the Maharishi School, which is a school which is very much against technology in some forms. And this is uh, just part of it. You know, he, he's against the technology that he says 25 years ago he learned about and no one knew, knew anything about it. I knew about this stuff when I was 10 years old. We talked about recombinant DNA and how scientists like Herb Boyer and others were coming up with solutions like the production of human insulin. Recombinant DNA technology had massive promise. I remember the first plants that were done with genetic engineering and the plants that could produce compounds to protect them from predators so we could use less insecticide. These were things I knew about way back in the 70s and 80s as a kid. So Smith kind of playing the dummy card here that this is some sort of sneak around secret technology is again, just a fabrication of his imagination. And I started to chip in and help out the movement and created some angles. And I was reading regular reports from Europe and regular reports from the US and the US press was entirely basically censored from this topic. And no one, none of the other NGOs, nonprofits, none of them wanted to talk about the health dangers. Well, the, the good thing is nowadays that's all changed and there's no more censorship ideas are accepted. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. Perfect line, Richard. Absolutely. Again, the host is playing into the credulous behavior of Jeffrey Smith. Um, Smith says that it's censorship, that the U.S. media was censored. Censored by whom? There's no censorship. It's just bad science that's not getting traction. When you say that it's dangerous, it doesn't mean that it is. Uh, it, you have to have research and data and evidence before you're going to declare a technology is dangerous when it's not. And this is really an important point, but it keys off of that conspiratorial uh, drive that this is somehow some deep cabal against people perpetuated by multinational corporations in collusion with governments, that whole trope. That's the basis of Smith's arguments. So it was interesting that, you know, at one point we were all excited because the Time Magazine international issue had, was a big article about GMOs. And when it came out in the U.S., that was gone. So I realized that I needed to get the information out in some way in the United States because it was consumer awareness of the health dangers which ultimately stopped the food companies from continuing to sell it in the food supply in Europe, and yet the mainstream media was blocking the message here. So I basically created a strategic angle to convey the health dangers, targeting the most receptive people in the United States, using media channels that could reach them, put out the book Seeds of Deception, and gave a thousand lectures and a thousand interviews in 45 countries, five films, trained 1,500 people to speak on GMOs, organized over 10,000 activists, and now 51% of the U.S. population believes that GMO foods are not safe and 48% worldwide. So we've achieved the target that we had wanted, the tipping point, engaging lots of people who are now comfortable speaking about the health dangers and now looking at even more dangerous impacts of GMOs if we don't do something right away. Now think about what he just admitted to. 
He talked about the Time magazine cover with Ingo Potricus that had uh, golden rice. And we might remember this from 1997 or 99 or so. That talked about the kind of uh, golden rice, the vitamin A supplemented rice that would help uh, folks in the developing world retain their eyesight and their health because of a vitamin deficiency that they would be able to overcome. Now, Smith says that uh, he saw the dangers. You know, he paid attention to the dangers. To date, through 30 years of, 25 years of use and probably 35 years of research, there is zero evidence, not one single case of health harm by genetically engineered crops or ingredients from genetically engineered crops. Not one. Yet Smith seems to believe that there are. And worse, he set up, uh, he, as he says, effective media campaigns, using media that people are finding, giving a thousand talks, training 1,500 people. He is admitting to, to spreading false information through the most, support, most appropriate conduits to lie to people about food. Think about that for a minute. He's admitting this. And then he says, today, 51% of people don't want it which says that he has been effective in his lies. He's used bad information to contribute to a movement that is affecting the buying habits of consumers. And is that what this is really about? Is it really working for a different industry? Or is he uh, genuinely uh, concerned about human health from these types of crops and ingredients? And I, I really don't think that he can get this because if he had any scientific acumen, he would be changing his arguments away from health effects. There is zero evidence for it. And the evidence that has been presented has been very well debunked. So he's not looking at the science critically. He's paying attention to the wrong people who are feeding him bad information. And he's choosing to parrot information that just isn't accurate. So what are, has anyone studied them still yet to date? Or was there only a few lab experiments that kind of were, were squashed that showed the, uh, the impact of GMOs? Like, how do you know what they do now to the human body? Well, let me just tell people that a lot of people expect that the genetically engineered crops would be very carefully tested before put on the market. But the FDA policy was that no safety studies were needed. And they did it on the basis of a claim of a single sentence, that the agency wasn't aware of information showing that GMOs were different from regular foods. So what Smith is saying here is making a statement that there is no regulation. What he is twisting is that there is FDA regulation, and it's very good regulation. The thing is, there is no one set of mandatory tests. It's because whether you're making an antiviral cassette or whether you're putting in resistance to an insect or resistance to an herbicide, they all have different mechanisms and they should all be assessed independently based upon their own merits and what we understand about their mechanisms. That's good science, something Smith doesn't really understand. So they are the most rigorously tested plants in the universe that all the plants that have gone through mutation breeding and um, all the other ways in which plants have been genetically improved are completely untested. It's in the past. But genetically engineered plants are the most rigorously tested. 
It can take 10 years or $130 million just to deregulate a, a GE crop. It takes a long time. And that's what keeps smaller companies and universities out of the process of creating genetically engineered crops, leaving this just to the national, uh, big multinational companies. And Smith and folks like Smith don't realize that if they don't like the big companies, they're the ones who are keeping them in business. Also talks about this idea of if the products are equivalent. And the way that the regulators look at this is, is sugar from a GE sugar beet the same as sugar from a non-GE sugar beet? And sugar is sugar. There's no magical genetic engineering dust that comes along with it. It's simply sugar. So the two compounds or the two end products are substantially equivalent, which means that the regulatory scheme would be very different because you're not consuming DNA. You're not consuming other metabolites. You're just consuming essentially almost 100% sugar. And that was a lie. It was a complete fabrication. It was exactly the opposite of what the consensus was among the scientists working at the FDA. But the person who was in charge of the policy of the FDA was Michael Taylor, Monsanto's former attorney. Monsanto, of course, was the big GMO giant. And Michael Taylor lied in the policy, claiming that the agency wasn't aware of the information showing the foods were different, and then became Monsanto's vice president, and then later became the foods are under Obama. So it was entirely a lie. And the predictions among the scientists at the FDA were that GMOs might create toxins, which has been confirmed, allergens, which has been confirmed, creating new diseases or higher levels of existing diseases, which has been confirmed in terms of a a lot of lines of evidence. So here we go back to the conspiracy again, that it was Michael Taylor, the guy who worked for Monsanto, that he was... The bottom line is, is that the FDA and other regulatory agencies benefit from uh, from hiring and working with people in the industry who know the most about it, the academics who know the most about it. It's not a conspiracy. It's a federal organization surrounding itself and stocking itself with the best personnel who know these questions. Now, Smith always talks about, well, people in the FDA knew the scientific consensus was, and that's not true. What Smith knows is what probably comes from the book by Stephen Drucker, who's one of his buddies up there at the Maharishi. Drucker uh, obtained old letters from within the FDA, from correspondence between people, and they would say things like, uh, yeah, there could be collateral changes, or we would anticipate that there would be collateral changes in DNA, or the production of allergens, whatever, because those are all formal scientific possibilities. Those are the things that scientists would say because, again, scientists are very conservative in how they speak about scientific problems. Does that mean that there are allergens? No. Does it mean that you can't measure collateral change? Of course not. So this is really just Smith creating fear, uncertainty, and doubt around a good technology. And that's what he does best. And in particular, we have the GMOs, which are dangerous, and we have the Roundup, which is sprayed on most Roundup-ready GMO crops, designed not to die when sprayed with Roundup. And so we now have two poisons interacting. Well, now you can add this other 
boogeyman of Roundup or the chemical glyphosate that in certain formulations is used as an herbicide in uh, genetically engineered crops. The crops are resistant, they don't die from the herbicide, but the weeds do. and allows farmers to have amazingly clean fields when they use this technology correctly. Now Smith will bring in Roundup and he'll talk about it a lot going forward because it's an additional aspect of this to create fear, uncertainty, and doubt around food. And then you have certain crops that are designed to produce a insecticide, which has been shown to also have damage for human health. Again, there's no evidence that indicates there's damage to human health from the Bt toxin. So this is a protein that is made um, by bacteria, certain bacteria, that is uh, used in organic farming. I mean, they use this everywhere. It's a naturally occurring protein that stops the digestion of certain lepidopteran insects. So um, uh, butterflies and moths, their larvae do damage crops, and then also certain beetles. The Bt toxin or the Bt molecule is so specific that the one for butterflies doesn't do much on, uh, on beetles and vice versa. They're very target specific. It's an amazing technology that has been extremely useful in both genetic engineering and organic farming. So you have a, a number of things to look at. And what we've come up with in the last 25 years since I've been working on it is such overwhelming evidence that we've convinced tens of thousands of physicians to prescribe non-GMO and organic diets. And we have thousands of people reporting that when they do make the switch, they get better from a long list of diseases, the same diseases that were either indicated directly or by precursors of the animal feeding studies so that when the animals were force-fed GMOs around it, they experienced those diseases or their precursors. So we also have evidence showing that many of those same diseases are rising in parallel with the increased use of GMOs and Roundup in the food supply. Well, this is where Smith will start to really conflate causation and ca uh, causation and causality. And just the beginning of that. Okay, so here's where genetic engineering started in the mid-90s, and now you see the incidence of all these diseases rising. It doesn't mean they're causing them. Now, I will give him a little bit of leeway here in that he says doctors that prescribe non-GMO diets um, see people's health uh, improve. Now, let's talk about that for a second. The place where you're encountering, uh, encountering ingredients from genetically engineered crops is in processed foods, in the center of the grocery store. So sugars, oils, um, the uh, things that are going into crackers and cookies and the processed food in the center of the uh, center of the store. That is where you're most likely to encounter ingredients from genetically engineered crops. So if a physician is saying, I want you to work with just fresh produce, uh, eat more salads, eat more fresh vegetables, eat fresh fish and meats, eat, um, you know, uh, breads and whatever, you're more likely to not encounter genetically engineered crops, but you're going to have health benefits maybe from losing weight from empty calories. And so there could be something there. I, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on that, but I don't uh, honestly believe that uh, that there was any kind of scientific evidence to justify his claim. And we have pets and livestock who are also similarly affected by either eating GMOs or not. 
or not. <laughs> so there's been a lot of really good research on this. And if you look at the quality of animal life and, and animal disease, because animals consume the vast majority of genetically engineered crop products, and it can constitute up to 100% of their diet. So you think about uh, industrial chickens, like, you know, large scale production of chicken or hogs or cows or whatever. Um, many of them are fed, or at least finished on, uh, very high levels of genetically engineered food is at least part of their diet. And there have been no changes observed in the hundreds of billions, if not probably a trillion meals that have been consumed by livestock. This was done, uh, an analysis of done, this was done by uh, Dr. Allison Van Enenem's group several years ago, maybe back in 2015. And it showed definitively that animals aren't affected by the food that they're eating. And we have so many doctors who swear that when they started, when GMOs started introdu being introduced into the food supply, their population of patients got much sicker with new complicated diseases. And when they took those patients and put them on an organic diet, they reverted to what they had seen prior to the introduction of GMOs. Same with pets. So there's now so much evidence that has validated and vindicated the scientists at the FDA who are calling for required studies, that we know that GMOs should never have been introduced and people should avoid eating them. The other important point to keep in mind is what Smith considers a qualified doctor. He's probably referring to homeopaths and naturopaths and people who claim to have some level of scientific sophistication who probably don't. And so this is another important caveat to remember as you're analyzing this. Remember, Smith is a very good ballroom dancer and apparently can fly from yogic flying. He has no scientific credentials, and he has a really bad lens to be able to pick out what an expert really is. So there is no danger. When you look at all of the expert feedback for human health, there, nothing has ever been shown. Not one scrap of evidence. And the data from animals has been really sketchy too. In fact, we're now on the, what, the uh, ninth anniversary of the Seralini paper, the paper that was going to rock the world with the evidence of the dangers of genetic engineering. And that data has never been reproduced in the last nine years, despite an investment of 15 million euros and three other studies that could not reproduce his results. But not just avoiding eating GMOs, because Roundup is not just sprayed on GMOs, it's sprayed on a lot of other non-GMO crops. So as we say, just eat organic. And there you have Smith's message. Smith is representing probably interests in the organic food industry because it's, it's not a question of just avoid genetically engineered crops. It's here's what you should do, eat organic. Nothing wrong with eating organic if you want to, but a lot of people can't afford it. And scaring people away from a perfectly healthy food with false fears and driving them towards food that can be twice as expensive is really not fair and something that we should be stepping in and pushing back against. Smith also talks about Roundup. And Roundup, uh, or the herbicide glyphosate, is used on a wide variety of crops, both those that are both those that have glyphosate tolerance or resistance and those that don't. But uh, some good examples. What it sometimes occasionally uses a dry down agent in wheat, sometimes for different kinds of um, pulses. So things like uh, chickpeas, for instance. 
may be dried down if environmental conditions are not conducive to the crop drying on its own. It can be applied to help it, help it desiccate. So Smith uh, notes this and says that there's no way that you can, uh, that if you want to avoid all these things, you have to eat organic. So that's his message. So where is the average person going to run into the uh, GMOs and glyphosate in the highest concentrations or in the worst forms? Like what, are there any particular foods or places where you really should stay away from if nothing else? That is a perfect question. So there's a dozen genetically engineered food crops. And because many of the top six are used in processed foods and in animal feed, if you simply get stuff in a can or a box, you're going to likely get a derivative of the genetically engineered soy, corn, cotton for cottonseed oil, canola for canola oil, sugar beets, which is for sugar, and alfalfa, which is used as animal feed. Those soy, corn, cotton, canola, sugar beets, and alfalfa are the six main GMOs. They all are sprayed with Roundup. Some produce their own toxic insecticide. Those are the ones that are planted to the millions of acres. In addition, you have some papaya from Hawaii or China, zucchini, yellow squash, uh, pink pineapple, and then there's a potato and an apple that are engineered not to turn brown when sliced. These are the 12 genetically engineered crops. Genetically engineered salmon may be on the market very soon. It was already sold in Canada. It could appear in, in restaurants in the United States soon. And then there's the animal products from animals that are fed GMOs, or in the case of dairy, injected with genetically engineered bovine growth hormone. So those are a category of things to avoid. You can go to responsibletechnology.org. That's the website for the Institute for Responsible Technology and get a list of those plus the derivatives of GM soy. So when you're looking at ingredients and if you don't know if it's a derivative, you'll be able to find out. Let's drill into that a little bit. Now, notice how he calls things derivatives. They're not derivatives. They're ingredients. These are no different from the ingredients from non-GE crops. They don't have any kind of magical power that comes with them. It's just another ingredient. That's it. He talks about the different uh, plants that are currently being grown, and he's correct. You know, that's it. It's corn, cotton, sugar beet, soy, canola, um, alfalfa, and then the, the potato and the apple, and the uh, pink pineapple is a new one. Salmon may be coming. But the bottom line is there really isn't that much of, you know, it's not like everything in the, in the produce section like some people sometimes imply. But Roundup, which is the chief poison of Roundup, is glyphosate. So they test for glyphosate residues. That's sprayed on oats and wheat and rice and potatoes and mung beans and lentils and basically the grains and the beans and a bunch of other things. And we have a report where we have put together all the different tests from the nonprofits that have done them, including our own, so that you can look in alphabetical order or by search, whether the, it's the raw ingredients, the fruits, the vegetables, the grains, etc., or even by brand name to see what the glyphosate residues are. And just as a rule of avoid oats unless it's organic, avoid wheat unless it's organic, avoid the beans and the grains, don't have hummus unless it's organic. If you want to avoid glyphosate and if you know the details of it, 
you want to avoid glyphosate. It's more like that if you understand the details, you really don't care if there's trace residues that have no consequence on human health. So Smith calls it a poison. He says the chief poison. And to Smith, he doesn't understand that dose makes the poison, that you can have trace amounts of things that are detected on the edge of nothing, parts per billion, parts per trillion, and they're not toxic in those amounts. This is seconds in 32 years, a part per billion, right? Just to give you an idea as to the levels that are present inside crops. The other thing is that when he talks about the list of organizations that have done the tests, um, a substantial number of them, a rather high percentage, are not reliable. They weren't done with the proper kits. And a lot of these have been done with uh, a competitive ELISA kit. And I've covered this in other episodes of the podcast series. So if you're curious about that, you can go back and find it. But doing competitive ELISA on using this kit does not always work because the kit's made for water. And it can be made to work with urine. Rather simple matrices, as they say, you know, as they say, uh, simple compounds to measure for the presence or absence of another compound, like glyphosate. But when you start looking at things like breast milk, like um, uh, wine, beer, um, other derivatives, blood, you can't accurately use those tests. So you have to look carefully at what the test is and how it's used and what its realistic limits are. Did they do the proper controls? And you find most of the time they don't. I am unaware of glyphosate being used as a dry down agent on oats or potatoes. And those are two of the things he mentioned. So it doesn't seem like that's reliable either. But most of all, you hear Smith again, um, making the fear of a compound, which is being used in vanishingly small amounts in residues that are on the edge of detection, which means they're almost not there. Yeah, it's crazy that um, even with these 12 products, it's so pervasive. Like, what would you estimate, you know, for someone that doesn't know and goes to the store and picks up processed foods, like, what's the likelihood that they're going to be consuming glyphosate and or Roundup? Very, very high. If, if people buy the pro- processed packaged foods, I'd say nine out of 10 of them have some derivative. Now, the more refined it is, the more fractionated it is, the less likely the dangers of GMOs will be will be strong. They can still be there. Um, but it's going to be there in nine out of 10 packaged processed foods. Glyphosate, if you add that to it, it increases it even more. So if you eat if you eat in the produce aisle, you get the fresh fruits and vegetables and whatnot. A lot less are going to have glyphosate residues. There's very few GMOs in that section of the store. So, uh, But if you start to eat organic, then you're going to have products that are not allowed to use GMOs or Roundup. And whatever percentage of contamination there is, it's probably very, very small. And that is pretty much the only thing he says in this entire interview that's accurate that the things in the produce aisle have very little glyphosate uh, detected on them because you can't use glyphosate on them. They would die. <laughs> so they're not made to resist it. That's a very, it's a trait only on a few of these large agronomic crops. Uh, even the potatoes, apples, and papayas do not have glyphosate resistance. They have other, other traits. So this is the one place where Smith kind of hits the nail on the head. If you eat out of the uh, produce section of the grocery store, your chances of running into genetically engineered crops or glyphosate is extremely small. Now, does that mean you should avoid it? 
Absolutely not. <laughs> but he, uh, I just, you know, he's making a statement here that's factual and we'll give him credit for that. Okay. So you've been looking at GMOs for how long? 15, 20 years? Or 25 or? years. 25 years. Oh. How, how have they changed over the 25 years? Have there been any changes? Have they been made any more safe or are they just out there? That's it. They've actually been made more dangerous. It's odd to say. Okay. The first ones were like soy and corn and canola, the, the Roundup Ready. What happened is the next big danger was the double-stranded RNA insert into potatoes and apples. To give you a thumbnail, the person who developed the genetically engineered potato that did not turn brown when it was sliced, he wrote a book after he left, after we retired, and the book was uh, Pandora's Potato, the worst GMO. He was the developer of it. And yet in his book, it was page after page of all the ways that it could actually cause significant health damage as well as environmental problems. He was not aware of that when he developed the potato for Simplot. The double-stranded DNA technology that Smith refers to is nothing freaky or weird. It's something the cell does all the time. That RNA is the intermediate between DNA and proteins that when you install a piece of RNA backwards as a genetically engineered trait, it will turn off the trait of interest. In this case, polyphenol oxidase, an enzyme that's responsible for the browning of apples and potatoes. We see examples of polyphenol oxidase naturally suppressed in products like green grapes, where the gene is disrupted. And it always has been, not by genetic engineering, but by natural mutation. The potato example refers to Dr. Caius Ramans, and Ramans used to work for the Simplot Corporation. Ramans was responsible for a number of papers around the potato innovation, um, namely a paper in plant physiology about what they called pDNA and uh, the letter P and then the letters DNA, and a number of papers that turned out to not be sound in their data. So they were fabricated data and they were retracted. This was a huge black eye for the Simplot company that was trying to get their products through deregulation. Now this is secondhand information, but I know people from that company or people who know people in that company. And it was indicated that Ramans was not happy about um, being let go from the company, but agreed to retire or resign. Um, and he did threaten the company that if they didn't keep him on, he would write a book about how horrible the potato is. And he did. He self-published a small book that says how evil the potato is with the idea of derailing the Simplot company. Um, Simplot chose to not even respond to Ramos's book. They just ignored it and it went away because it's obvious to see that the science is good and hit, uh, Ramos, who falsified data in his papers, uh, probably doesn't have a good scientific leg to stand on. The process of double-stranded RNA silencing the gene that produces the brown effect when you slice the potato, one of the many things that can go wrong is that little strip of RNA is designed to find and react with the complementary sequence in the genome of the potato. But if you eat the potato or the apple, which has the same mechanism, that little strip of RNA could find and interact with your own genome because it will find 
a sequence that is exactly the same or similar to its little 22 base pair strip among the 2 billion base pairs of the human genome, and it may silence the production of whatever that section is creating, and it could be a disaster. So in other words, eating the genetically engineered pre-sliced apples or the potatoes that don't turn brown could theoretically reprogram your DNA. Theoretically, you know, there's Smith's weasel words. It's possible that this could happen. Now, where does he get these ideas? This comes from a 2012 paper by um, Zhang et al., Z-H-A-N-G, in Cell Research. And at the time, this was a great story. Because what it suggested is that mice that were fed rice uh, would have some of the DNA or some of the RNA from the, from the rice be digested, survive digestion, make their way through the bloodstream to change gene expression to alter cholesterol levels. This was so freaking cool. And I was just, I couldn't believe how neat this paper was. I actually presented it in a journal club at my university. I thought this was really great stuff. Here your food was having some sort of effect on the uh, homeostasis of, of the body's uh, response to food uh, through other mechanisms than were already known. So pretty cool. Turns out though, that it was not reproducible. Those that looked very carefully at the data realized that the data that they were observing were artifacts, and here we are almost a decade later, and it's never been reproduced. Actually, it is uh, exactly a decade later today, this week. And uh, it originally was put online in 2011, September 2011. And um, it doesn't work this way. And as much as people wanted it to be true, including me, <laughs> lots of people have looked at this very carefully and looked at the RNAs in the bloodstream after eating. And the bottom line is, is that it, it's, it's not even a feasible mechanism. That there's so little there that you wouldn't be able to regulate anything in a meaningful way uh, by circulating in the bloodstream. So once again, Smith grabs on to the science that he can cherry pick, the stuff that confirms his biases, that gives a story that he wants to believe. And he doesn't know the science and doesn't bother to follow up on the science. He just uses the evidence that supports his screwed up bias. And it gets worse, Richard, because you asked the progression. That's a few years old. Now we have a situation where a new type of genetic engineering is made popular. In the past, if you wanted to create soy or corn that was genetically engineered, you'd take genes from bacteria or viruses and you'd put it into a gun. You'd coat millions of particles of tungsten or gold and shoot those particles with a gun. It was originally done with a 22 caliber into a plate of cells, hoping that some of those genes made it into the DNA of some of those cells, and then you would clone them into plants. Or you use bacteria to smuggle those genes into the cells and then clone them. The process creates massive collateral damage in the DNA, and that damage exists in every cell that is part of the genetically engineered plant. So I really want you to listen to the way that he frames these issues. 
it uses a lot of really negative uh, visual uh, language, which is not necessarily accurate. So do you put it into a gun? What you use is something that's been referred to as a gene gun, just in ver common vernacular, but it's actually a chamber that you coat a small disc with uh, particles of tungsten or gold, like he said, and DNA. And then you use a helium charge, puff of helium, to rupture that disc and shoot those particles into plant tissue. And occasionally as they move through, they drop DNA, which DNA inside the nucleus may get incorporated into the plant's genome. Uh, there's other ways to do it too, but that's pretty much the main way when you're, you're talking about gene guns. Um, they really are called um, biolistic projectiles or whatever it is. Um, the other thing he talked about is bacteria that smuggle, you know, smuggle DNA into the cell. There's a bacterium called Agrobacterium tumefaciens, where part of its natural life cycle is to move a piece of its DNA into the plant. When it does that, the plant takes on a couple of characteristics that make it a more hospitable place for the bacteria. And so if you're walking through the woods or through a field and you see the galls on trees or on plants, that's Agrobacterium infection where it transfers some genes that cause this localized swelling and kind of a uh, swelling or uh, tumor production. It's, it's not really like a human tumor. It's, it's cells that have different or de-differentiated a generic cell type. And this facilitates a place for bacteria to live, you know, a little more, uh, I don't know, kind of symbiotically. And it does this transfer. Scientists have used the same tool to be able to program those bacteria to deliver their payload. And so they, we put the genes that we want into the bacteria, the bacteria puts them into the plant. It's not really smuggling, it's more like, it's more like placement. When he says massive collateral damage, what does that mean? Well, it inserts this into the DNA, but it doesn't know where it does. It doesn't do it in a prescribed place. It does it in a random place. And that can disrupt genes and do other things. But it's all understandable where it happens and what happens. It's not that hard to do these days. So massive collateral damage? Yeah, I don't know. Smuggling? I don't know. But it gives you a glimpse into how he uses rhetoric to make this process seem gross and, uh, and unappealing, when really what this is, is it's miraculous that we can do it. Now they can insert into the plant, sometimes through the same ballistics and sometimes through the same smuggling of the bacteria. They insert genetic scissors with a guide. The guide, just like that RNA before, the guide lines up with a certain section of the DNA. But in this case, instead of simply silencing it, it cuts it. It cuts it, and it cuts it in a way so that it can remove a section or add a section of DNA that it's carrying with it. And this is called... Oh, this is like the CRISPR-Cas9 stuff. Precisely. This is CRISPR-Cas9, one of the methods of gene editing. Now, what's interesting is you're reading in the book Seeds of Deception, which I sent you, all these lies about the safety of GMOs, that it's safe and predictable and more precise than, than um, breeding. All lies, all proven to be lies. Absolutely, 100% false. 
Smith is absolutely lying to you here. Because when we breed plants together, create a hybrid, and it's been done with corn. They've looked at uh, um, uh, Missouri 17 and uh, the other one. Uh, gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. Two major corn varieties. They breed the two together as inbreds, and they show the differences between the number of genes that are different. There's so many differences, and things come together in ways you could never have predicted. Uh, transposons and viral RNA and all kinds of stuff that just gets mixed in ways that's all over the place. That's traditional breeding. Nobody has a problem with it. Mutation breeding, treating plants with mutagens to uh, scramble DNA or to change the, the fundamental code in ways that you can't predict, in, in ways you don't assess. Perfectly acceptable with Smith and with the organic program, whatever. Transgenics and gene editing are very precise in that you're moving one gene that you understand what it does and you can monitor its insertion, its expression, its long-term effect. Easy. You know what you're doing. It is much more precise. Gene editing, when they referred to CRISPR and Cas9, and even the host knew about this because he's spoken about how great this stuff is. He's had guests talk about all the benefits of, of CRISPR-Cas9, yet he doesn't take a second and challenge Smith, who's lying through his teeth about the precision of this technology. I'm, I'm blown away by this because this podcast series has talked about gene editing, yet here they're letting Smith... Just make up nonsense. And we continue. So now what is the biotech industry doing? They're saying, oh, gene editing, safe, predictable, more precise. It's the same words. It's the same sentence structure. And it is not true. It causes massive collateral damage. It can cause chromosome shatter to rearrange. It can pick up bacterial genes from the Petri dish. It can pick up cow genes from the Petri dish and shove them into the mouse genome. It is absolutely, as one writer wrote, chromosomal mayhem. And yet the biotech industry has convinced numerous governments to turn a blind eye and not regulate anything that's the product right. of gene editing. The big difference here is that gene editing is a precise science. You know where you're doing the edit because that's why it works. You have an enzyme called Cas9 or one of the other Cas gene editor enzymes, one of the site-directed nucleases, that you can tell it where to cut, and it does it. That it makes a deletion in the spot where you want it. Now, you can easily check the genome for other collateral effects or other deletions because they do happen. But... You also can identify plants or animals where those deletions are localized and precise without chromosome shattering and genome mayhem or whatever he called them. Worst band name ever. <laughs> the bottom line is, is that this technology is amazingly precise. And when he says that they, uh, governments around the world don't want to regulate it, it's because if you can create by gene editing... The same change that you could create by traditional breeding if you had 150, 200, 300, 400 years, then we don't regulate it because it's a naturally occurring allele or a naturally occurring gene variant that's already out there. It just allows you to create it 
rather than breed it in, which could take many, many, many generations. And if you're working with fruit trees or sperm whales or something, it, it's not an overnight process. That is why gene editing is so powerful and why regulation should be smart, yet limited and overstepping to overregulate a very good science. And so you can buy a gene editing kit on Amazon for $169. If you invest one to $2,000, you can have a lab to create a new GMO microbe every day, give it a name and then send it outside and alter the nature of nature forever because you can't recall a genetically engineered organism once you put it in the environment. If it survives, it may displace its normal counterpart. It may interrupt normal sequences. And basically, if you've ever, I know that you've done some research on the microbiome through your right. interviews, it is a mission-critical, life-critical, fundamental aspect of human health and the environment. And yet, if you genetically engineer a microbe, it can travel the world, it can swap genes with other microbes, and slight changes in the microbiome can damage ecosystems or collapse them, not only outside of us, but also inside of us. And so imagine if a million genetically engineered gene edited microbes are released over this generation in high school classes, in college classes, in government and private laboratories. For whatever reason, it could destroy the brilliant magnificence of the microbiome and in an irreversible, untrackable way, bestowing on all future generations a, a little genetic time bomb, destroyed king set of kingdoms that have co-evolved with us so brilliantly that we actually outsource 90% of our daily metabolic functions to the microbiome and rely on the 3.5 million genes of the microbiome inside us because we can't get along with just the 22,000 that we have in our cells, which is less than earthworms. And we are willing to risk that because we are not paying attention to the vast beauty of nature, the complexity of the microbiome, and the ability of even a single genetically engineered microbe to wreak havoc. Well, if that's the case, then we are all screwed. So first of all, I can't find any gene editing kit on Amazon for $169 or whatever he said. Um, I'm actually, in my laboratory, we do gene editing, and it requires a full molecular biology laboratory to do it right. So I'm not exactly excited about Smith's claim there. The other thing is, is that he, it's not like every bacterial cell in our bodies are made up of billion, tens of billions of them, right? They're not static, they're always dividing. They're always reproducing. Errors are happening. Evolution constantly occurs. That gain of function and loss of function are an everyday occurrence in bacterial populations. And usually they're a dead end because unless they can, you know, escape and be moving on, you know, in a, in a way, that's it. So his fear of high school students with a kit from Amazon creating a new bacterium that wreaks havoc and destroys the world, um, evolution is a lot better at that than, uh, than a high school student. Meaning these things are happening constantly. Some bacteria, at least enteric bacteria, can be reproducing every 20 minutes. Errors happen, tens of billions of cells. The numbers of something bad happening from a naturally occurring phenomenon are infinitely larger. So Smith, he's kind of moving the goalpost here. He sees that his, his old shtick is worn out. 
Now he's starting to worry more about genetically engineered microbes um, when nature is genetically engineering microbes at a pace that humans could never keep up with. Well, quick question here. When we eat foods, what happens to the genetic material of the food? Like if I eat some raw carrots or even, well, I guess not cooked carrots, but let's say I eat some raw food. What happens to the genes that are in the food? Do you think that they interact with us in any way? Does our body use any of the genetic material of what we consume? What we do know is that the RNA in that carrot or kale or whatever can program our genetic expression. So this is an interesting thing that people think that, you know, food is the vitamins and the minerals and the micronutrients and maybe the phytochemicals, but it's also the RNA. And this is not, even though this is very, very modern, it's also an ancient understanding. Ayurveda talks about food as having an intelligence that gets transferred somehow into the body. And they talk about a sequence as well. And it's actually the case that one of the qualities of the food is its ability to turn on and off genes in our bodies. Wrong. Again, he again refers to the paper by Zhang et al. 2012, the one that made the claim about rice RNA consumed by mice to produce small RNAs that would regulate lipid metabolism in the liver. It is not true. It has not been resubstantiated. And everybody who's looked at that, multiple, multiple groups now, have shown that it just it was an artifact of their analysis. But Smith doesn't know that, or he does know that, yet and continues to support the lie. Now, that's that's step one. The other thing that he talked about in there was, um, you know, it, what about our food? That was what the, co- what the host had asked. Let's think about this for a minute. In every swallow, you're swallowing saliva that's filled with millions of bacteria. Those bacteria do not become you. You know, at least the, the DNA in those bacteria do not become you. The fun- fungi that are covering fungal spores and microorganisms that are covering everything we eat, no matter how clean it is, um, don't become uh, us. The carrot DNA doesn't become us. The, 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 it, it's a ridiculous, ridiculous contention that when you look at the, the, the cells in a human, it's the human cells, Cells protect themselves from integration of foreign DNA in most cases. And we'll talk about some examples in a minute. But it's insane to think that consuming DNA is somehow going to change your DNA. We consume probably, I don't know, billions of organisms a day with billions of genomes that aren't ours. Yet, we don't turn into a carrot, a potato, a fungus, or a bacterium. It just doesn't happen. Now, I was interviewing a bunch of very, very top uh, physicians and scientists for a summit I did called Healing from GMOs and Roundup. And one of those people was Dietrich Klinghardt, and he brought in another aspect. He said that in the case of St. John's wort, which is an herb, half of the uh, studies show that it works very well, and the other half show that it doesn't work at all. But if you look at how the St. John's wort was prepared for those two studies, you might conclude that where the microbiome that was part of the plant was intact, that it had the effect. So one theory, which is not a theory that I know enough about to endorse, 
I'm just sharing. <laughs> I don't know enough about it to say anything intelligent, but I'll tell you, say, say it anyway. <laughs> it's probably not the, uh, the uh, microbiome of the St. John's wort. You have to think about plant secondary metabolites, which are shown to have physiological function, pharmacological function that they will vary in levels depending upon the plant's nutrition, the sunlight, the amount of water that plant has, time of year, circadian rhythms, um, whether or not it's been damaged by insects, any environmental stress will change the metabolic profile of a plant. So it could be that these things were grown in ways that are not standardized, and you just don't see the, the, uh, the pharmacological molecules of something like St. John's wort, which we know there's some stuff in there that does have uh, effects. Whether or not it really cures anything remains to be seen. But it's more likely that it just was adulterated St. John's wort, that the uh, stuff that you buy in a, in a grocery store or in a vitamin shop in herbal supplements uh, typically is uh, not what it says. And if you sequence the DNA of the stuff, it's probably freaking oak leaves. But, you know, who knows? It, it's all BS, but I just wanted to point out uh, Smith's claim of not knowing anything, but still telling you anyway is that one another aspect of food is the microbiome on the food. He said that, you know, lettuce and, and those type of salad greens, we may only be able to digest 5% of them, and yet they're healthy. Maybe it's the microbiome on them that in part renders our health better, and we're not paying attention to that. So you asked about the genes, and I said, well, the RNA we know about and now we are suspecting that the microbiome accompanying the food might also have an impact. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, we do I mean, know that if you, eat, if you eat genetically engineered foods, that the, RNA, the DNA of those foods will end up in different organs. Uh, but we don't have evidence whether that DNA sections have integrated into human cells. Um, we do have the single study uh, that was published in 2004 in Nature Biotechnology that verified that part of the gene that was inserted into soybeans to allow the soybeans not to die when sprayed with Roundup, that section transferred into the DNA of bacteria living inside us. Now, the fact that genes can transfer from genetically engineered crops into our gut microbiome is very, very serious. Except for it happens all the time. Uh, Haemophilus influenzae, um, streptococcus, uh, well, a variety of different bacteria uh, happily pick up stray DNA from the solution around them. And that's what they do. It's called transformation. They scavenge uh, rogue DNA and incorporate it into their genomes as an evolutionary driver. Uh, others like Streptococcus mutans constantly are taking, creating changes in their DNA. But the, the main one was this idea of scavenging DNA from, from the environment and putting it into the genome is nothing unusual for a number of different bacterial species. So Smith, again, is, is, is going out on a limb. If you think about, so he says that the, the, the DNA from uh, GE soybeans gets incorporated into uh, bacteria, whatever. That's not a big surprise. But he's saying that it's in the tissues of your body. Think about this for a minute. Out of all the things that you consume, all the bacteria, all the fungal DNA, all the animal DNA, all the plant DNA, how much of that is incorporated? 
Well, he would say none, but the GMO stuff is. Think about that for a second. Does it make any sense? And on one hand, he's saying, you know, there's this food that if you eat it, you're going to have the DNA incorporated into your DNA. But then he's talking about these microbiomes on the food. Bacterial genomes, thousands of them. And those are nothing to fear. It just is the story. It doesn't make any sense that for some reason, the thing that we understand is the threat. The stuff that we don't understand, perfectly fine. It's always the paradox of these conversations. Think, for example, of the corn that produces the insecticide called Bacillus thuringiensis, or BT. It's a toxin that can poke holes in human, in human cells in a laboratory. It's designed to poke holes in the guts of insects to kill them. It has a allergic potential so people can, or animals can get allergic type responses. Now imagine if you're eating a corn chip from Monsanto's corn, bought by bear so we can use them interchangeably. And that corn is engineered to produce a toxic insecticide BT. It's a gene that produces the protein that's toxic. What if that gene transfers to our gut bacteria? It might reprogram it so that our own intestinal flora become living pesticide factories. No one has studied to see if that happened when, the, when we found out that the soybean gene transferred, the, the UK pro-GMO pro UK government pulled all funding before they could find out if anything else transferred. But that might explain why 93% of the pregnant women tested in Canada had BT toxin in their blood. All right, let's start at the end. What was that thing about 93% of pregnant women in, in Canada? There was a study by Eris and LeBlanc, I believe it was 2011, where they used, the, uh, used a kit, an antibody kit, that was designed for use in, uh, in one application, using it with human blood. And they got extremely low levels that were below the range of detection and quantitation, and they called this positives. So in other words, they were seeing noise in the assay and called it positive tests. Um, it's never been repeat reproduced. No one's ever done any further investigation. Uh, there were no negative controls. Um, they didn't know that, you know, if, if it was BT that was being detected, how did they know it didn't come from an organic farm? You know, there's all these other controls that they needed to do and they didn't do them. So it was, it was a really, really poor piece of scholarship and it fuels uh, folks like Smith. So talking about BT, poke holes, it doesn't poke holes. BT, where actually the protein is called delta endotoxin, it works by uh, binding to a specific receptor in the gut of insects and they tend to complex once the receptor is bound. And once they're bound, they create a pore in which allows the inside of the system and the outside of the system to mix, the inside of the intestines and outside to mix. And the organism dies of sepsis. Uh, there is no evidence that it's allergenic. That came from a computer-based prediction that the BT protein could potentially have some antigenic sequences, but it's never been demonstrated clinically or in any, you know, anybody having this. And if it was true, everybody would have allergies to it. I mean, if that was true, but anyway, we don't see it. Um, the uh, other major, I took some notes here as I was going, because he gets going on his gish gallop and I got to keep on top of this. The bottom line is, is that this is a very good 
protein because of its narrow target range. It's like how you wouldn't feed chocolate to your dog, but it's perfectly fine for you. The Bacillus thuringiensis delta endotoxin is, is toxic to the target, but not to the non-target. That's why it's so good, and it works so well. It's been an amazing strategy for organic farmers, and it's been an amazing strategy for conventional farmers to cut insecticide use because they have a plant that protects itself. Great technology. Smith doesn't like it. What else is new? It's well, one thing you wrote uh, in your book that I thought was crazy is you said, I believe, that diabetes increased 38% between 1990 and 1998 alone. And it seems to be correlated with the use of GMO products in Roundup. Yeah, and it's, that's it's, the case. That's, that's insane. Well, the thing is, it's more than that. It's like, uh, since I did that book, Nancy Swanson and Stephanie Seneff have pulled together data from around the country on several diseases that they believe are theoretically tied with the increased use of GMOs around them. And I show these charts, and the charts have a slope of increase of either the amount of genetically engineered soy and corn introduced into the acreage in the U.S., or the amount of Roundup-based, Roundup herbicides sprayed on those. And the slope rises up in parallel with devastating high levels of correlation, doesn't prove causation, but it's amazing to look at, for autism, diabetes, deaths from intestinal infection, deaths from leukemia, deaths from Parkinson's, deaths from obesity, deaths from high blood pressure, deaths from Alzheimer's, ADHD, anxiety, insomnia, all these different things, and then all these digestive disorders. And we can take any one of those and look at the plausible causative pathway. For example, insomnia, right? Well, there really is no correlation. I mean, it's a correlation, but there's been no causative biology that's ever been demonstrated. And that's what's really important to see here. If there was something that was common to all these crops, whether it was an antiviral papaya or uh, a plant that protects itself from insects or a plant that protects itself from herbicide, they don't all share anything except for the fact that they're engineered and they're engineered in different ways. So there's nothing common about all of them that allows you to lump them into one category and say these are problematic. Oh, and by the way, these things that don't share any common element, that don't have any evidence of toxicity or anything um, unusual about them, um, oh, they cause um, everything. <laughs> From ADHD to insomnia to Alzheimer's to Parkinson's to whatever, whatever, whatever. And this is really the work of Senef and Swanson, who are notorious cherry pickers. They'll go find data and then find a curve that fits it. And you can find this stuff all over the web. You can find correlations between bathtub drownings and the releases of Nicolas Cage movies. You can find marshmallow consumption and the number of divorces in Maine. Correlations don't mean much. They're a starting point. And when you look at the arguments that are being made by folks like Smith, it's, it's laid out as such a smoking gun. The bottom line is, is that people don't die from things like heart attacks and, and uh, generally infectious disease unless they don't get vaccinated. And that leaves the door open for seeing increases of other types of long-term neurodegenerative diseases. I mean, it's, it's no surprise that we see those things increasing. 
You probably see deaths from heart disease decreasing and deaths from cancer staying about flat. It doesn't mean that uh, GE crops are uh, working against heart disease. The bottom line is this is how they try to fool you, and it does fool a lot of people, using these correlations to make very strong inferences about causality when there's absolutely no plausible way that it could possibly happen. Why would insomnia be related to GMOs and Roundup in the diet? Roundup's mode of action, according to Monsanto, and it's one of many, but they only acknowledge one, is that it blocks a certain pathway in plants. It's called the shikimate pathway. And they say, because humans don't have that pathway, it's safe enough to drink. It has no effect on humans. It's not true. It can kill you. So recently they discovered that the, the gut bacteria inside us uses the shikimate pathway to produce the precursors for neurotransmitters, serotonin, and dopamine. And that oh, okay. in the presence of glyphosate, that gets shut down. Now, here's another really strong stretch, trying to make an inference that there's a connection where there really isn't. Now, granted, some bacteria do use the shikimate pathway. After all, that's where this gene came from. It came from bacteria. And they do use a, a variant that is, uh, that, that is resistant to glyphosate. Others are sensitive to it. We know that. But here's what Smith doesn't realize. If you look at the level of exposure, it's so small, parts per billion, all right? At the worst, and this is if you're eating off of raw produce, if you look at the reliable numbers, you're looking at parts per billion of presence, which again is seconds in 32 years. If you consider the number of gut bacteria that are present, the other pharmacological fates of the glyphosate molecule, meaning moving out of the gut and into the bloodstream, uh, into the uh, urine, um, you, you look at all these other factors and how many molecules are really there per bacterium? Maybe one, maybe 0.1, maybe 0.0001. The math just doesn't work out. Smith doesn't realize that there's no exposure. The exposure is so small. And each, each plant has, or each um, bacterium has, has who knows how many, how many EPSPS molecules, which is the enzyme in the shikimate pathway that glyphosate inhibits. So when you do the math and you look at the stoichiometry, here's the molecules going in, here's what they're binding to, here's the number of bacteria, the math doesn't work. On top of that, Glyphosate doesn't go through cell, go through membranes very easily. Um, we did experiments in the laboratory trying to re-engineer the EPSPS enzyme because we wanted to make one that could be used as a selectable marker for plant biology. Long story. But we wanted to recode the enzyme and see how if we could make it work better or worse. Long story. Bottom line is, is that we used E. coli thinking that we could use E. coli to make it sensitive to glyphosate with a sensitive enzyme, and that we would just feed glyphosate and see how it did. It turns out we could never even get glyphosate into E. coli. No matter how much you put in, it, it wouldn't even go into bacteria unless you had some sort of surfactant. So you had to have some other molecule in the culture with it, um, something to allow it to pass through the membranes. So in the human gut, you don't have the surfactants in any great amount. You don't have the glyphosate in any great amount. So Smith is making up another connection that really doesn't exist. And the podcast host doesn't press him on it. 
It's really sad. Only a few more to go here. Now, what happens is when you claritonin, it then transfers into melatonin, which governs your sleep. So if you're not getting enough serotonin and melatonin, that could explain the anxiety, maybe the ADHD, it could explain the depression, and it could explain the insomnia and other sleep disorders. And the dopamine might explain the correlation with Parkinson's. So you have a situation where you can take a look at one particular, like in autism or diabetes, and you can look at all the modes of action of GMOs and Roundup and say, oh, this could mean, this could be the reason why. Or it's probably not. He mentioned earlier that there was some other mode of action or other modes of action. Glyphosate works by binding the EPSPS enzyme, the uh, 3-enolpyruval shikimic phosphate synthase. It binds that molecule and slows the production of aromatic amino acids, which a plant needs to survive. Um, humans don't have that enzyme. Some bacteria do. But again, it's about the dose. The presence of this stuff is so small, and the pharmacological fate is pretty well known, pretty well established, that the actual exposure to gut bacteria would be almost not possible at least in levels that matter, and then getting it into the cell, the bioavailability in the cell. So Smith, again, is making inferences and spreading nonsense. It's complete BS, but he does it with this authoritative voice that makes it sound like he knows what he's talking about, and it fools people, and it scares them from food. But what's interesting is I used to, starting in 2012, um, after giving plenty of talks to medical conferences, and then the doctor started to approach me and say, I am now prescribing non-GMO diets, and I'm seeing the change in my patients. I decided to ask the audiences at lectures, have you noticed a change when you switch to non-GMO or, or organic food? And a bunch of people's hands went up. I said, okay, what examples? So someone would say, okay, acid reflux, irritable bowel, whatever. I said, okay, how many people noticed an improvement in digestion? And then skin conditions and kidney problems and infertility and all that. And these are audiences that pay to go see him. And you wonder why they agree with him. So it's not like you're talking to the man on the street. You're talking in your med medical conference. You're probably talking about some sort of uh, you know alternative medicine conference. There's nobody in legitimate medicine that takes this guy seriously. There's nobody in the scientific consensus that gives him the time of day. He is a, a snake oil salesman widely regarded as someone who simply spreads false information for personal profit. That's all this guy is, and that's that's why this is so egregious. So I compiled 28 different conditions that people reported getting better from. But I also Ooh. knew asking 150 lectures, including two dozen medical conferences, so the people in the audience were speaking about their population of patients and not just themselves, I knew that digestion was number one. I knew that brain fog and fatigue, because I combined them, was number two. And there was weight gain, and there was anxiety, etc. So I sent out a survey through the uh, responsibletechnology.org to our list. And we got 3,256 people responding to the survey. And they, wow. too, they too got better from the 28 different conditions in the same relative order that I had <laughs> seen in those, in those lectures. Digestion, 85.2% showed an improvement in digestion. 60% better uh, improvement in fatigue. Then it was weight problems. Then it was brain fog. Then it was anxiety and depression. Then it was allergies and, and food sensitivities. They were still above 50%. 
So we have that with the people. We have it with the pets. I remember interviewing Barbara Royal, who was Oprah's veterinarian. I interviewed her. She was cool. Yeah, yeah. She she said to me, now when someone presents, she puts her patients on a new diet and says, see me in a few weeks. And up to 90% of all the problems are resolved or managed just by a change in the diet. She never considered that until after GMOs and Roundup were on the scene. And now she believes it's GMOs and Roundup that are the drivers of so many of these diseases. And this is what's so hilarious about this particular survey. He put out the survey to the people in his cohort, like the email list for Institute of Responsible Technology, which is the same address as his home. It's basically his broom closet. And the survey said, okay, um, uh, um, when you gave up GM things with genetic engineering products in it, when or he actually said when you gave up GMO foods, these are your answers. You either had some mild improvement, moderate improvement, significant improvement, nearly gone, or complete recovery. There was no option for didn't see any improvement. <laughs> so really, all you could all you could really do was improve. There, you, you, anybody who selected an answer had it was I mean the, the only answers were improvement. So I wonder why he gets um, really strong support of the idea that things improve. So a biased sample, no negative control, and um, and and no negative outcome possible in the survey. <laughs> please pick between your favorite. Please pick your pick your favorite color. Blue, light blue, dark blue, green blue, blue blue, or royal blue. And the survey shows everybody likes blue. Is are there any, uh, well, so changing your diet obviously is the most expedient way to help yourself. Are there any other ways? Like I had read, if you take glycine, it seems to blunt the effect of, uh, of Roundup a bit. Is that true well, or do you know? Or You know, there's a lot of theories. I did interview those 18 experts for healing from GMOs and Roundup. And, you know, there's some people that recommend uh, this or that. And I, I can't endorse one particular way because it's way above my pay grade to try and take these expert genius protocols and, and chisel them down to something that I think is appropriate. I just ask them and let people hear. Now, Smith, if he's calling them an expert, are a very carefully chosen of people, a group of people that he agrees with and people who likely are showing the same type of views he does towards genetic engineering because he wouldn't interview an expert like me or an expert like any scientist who's with the scientific consensus because it doesn't support his viewpoint in his business. So once again, he falls on the, well, I don't know anything, but here's why it's killing you. You know, that whole like playing dumb while playing uh, authority is, is really annoying. And he really needs to cop to it. You know, he really just needs to say, I'm, this is what I'm telling you. It's always this kind of like veiled, um, hey, I didn't say that. I'm just saying what the experts said, you know, to kind of keep himself distanced from it. It probably gives him an out in case there's ever any legal thoughts brought against him because he can say, hey, I didn't say it was this. I, I was just saying what the experts told me. I don't know anything. I'm just a ballroom dancer. You know, you see the patterns. Just a couple more here and we're done. I know it's an hour and a half, <laughs> but, you know, it takes a long time to debunk garbage. But if you think about it, glyphosate grabs onto minerals, making them unavailable. 
And so remineralization is helpful. It causes leaky gut. It roundup creates uh, the tight junctions to become loose in the gut. So you want to be able to heal that. Glyphosate also is a genotoxin, so it can cause damage to the DNA. You need to protect that. It can block the production of serotonin, melatonin, and dopamine. So how do you reverse that? It can, it, it's a known antibiotic. It destroys the um, beneficial bacteria, but not the dangerous stuff in such a way that it can promote all these different diseases. So we need to support that. It's a mitochondrial toxin. And so mitochondria damage is linked to shorter life. It's linked to cancer. It's linked to fatigue. It's linked to brain problems. So you can look at all of these components as we have and come up with a regimen. Oh, boy. So here he goes in the, the whole thing that glyphosate causes everything. Uh, first of all, it's a very weak chelator, which means a chelator is a molecule which binds divalent cations, uh, the positive charged um, ions like magnesium or calcium. Really, magnesium is the big one. Manganese, maybe to some degree. Uh, iron, maybe to some degree. But the uh, discussion is that these are this thing is a chelator. And that was uh, once the supposition, it is a weak chelator. It's not removing the minerals from your body. It's not there in appreciable levels in a molar ratio to be able to do that. The claims that it's genotoxic come from what were called comet assays, which were some assays that were done in a South American experiment that were rather poorly orchestrated. They were, uh, if you remember uh, the paper, uh, the cells that they collected were carried over long distance in a cooler from one sample and not from the other. And so you were seeing differences in the breakdown of DNA. And that was the basis for this claim that there's cytotoxicity. Um, I could go on and on about each one of these. But when he talks about serotonin and, and, and dopamine and all this stuff, that has never been demonstrated anywhere. It's strictly a bad hypothesis. And it would be easy enough to feed glyphosate to rats or whatever and then measure the dopamine levels, measure the serotonin levels. Never been done. It's only an inference that supports the claims that he wishes were true and keeps the lights on at the broom closet for responsible technology. But I have to say this, Richard, the number one thing is to switch to organic and so many things can resolve because the body's own intelligence. If you have a healthy diet, you can get organic that's really high quality and you can get organic that's just kind of okay. If you can get, you know, high quality organic food so that your body has the as the ingredients that it can use so its own intelligence can do the detoxification. While you're taking Roundup or, or in your food, your, your detox of your liver becomes hampered. Your detox of your cells become hampered. Your detox through your microbiome can become hampered. So all these other toxins can be building up in your body. But when you get out of that and your own detoxification pathways start to release, then you may find that just that by itself can end up clearing up your eczema, clearing up your brain fog, and in some cases, if the infertile couples are having kids. Again, it's anytime you hear the word toxins, you know someone's pulling your leg. There's no magic in organic food. It's great that organic farmers grow it, great that people have those choices, but when you look at the equivalence between uh, organic and conventional produce, it's really close, and there's certainly no magical toxin that's in one that's in, not in the other. Um, so, it, it, again, he's, he's really a, 
you can see his agenda. He's here to promote a certain type of agriculture. That's what he's all for. And to do that, he has to scare you away from conventional agriculture and the seeds and the chemistries that are used. And they're used safely. Um, so th this is Smith's shtick. Okay, I'm going to stop here. We'll go on to the next one. In the film that I did with Amy Hart called Secret Ingredients, we visited many, many people whose lives changed dramatically when they switched to organic. But one astounding finding was in a chiropractic clinic where Dr. Marcia Schaefer put infertile couples on an organic diet as part of her chiropractic treatment and all that. And 100% of them had children. Wow. 100%. Over 100 couples so far. That's really cool. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, don't know what to say about that, but just more bad science. It's not a real clinical study. Um, what did he have? Five couples that came in that switched to a different diet and they all had kids. Did they have trouble conceiving in the first place? You know, these are the things that may be considered. And plus, you know, that's the old story that if you are on a diet and eating healthy and trying to do what you can to, to uh, have kids or whatever, you're going to change a lot of things in your lifestyle. Maybe get a little more exercise, maybe get better sleep. You're, it, it, there's no good controls on this that allow you to say that there's causality associated with one particular lifestyle choice or behavioral change. On to the next one. How how soon, I guess, I mean, soon doesn't matter because people will tend to eat, you know, glyphosate and Roundup in all their foods for years and years. So, I mean, um, well, here's is it a continuing worsening of their condition? Like, how does it play out over time? And this is where the host is playing right into this, implying that there's some sort of cumulative effect. First of all, there's basically nothing there. As I've mentioned before, parts per billion in the worst case scenarios, that the measurements that are coming through all these folks who are claiming this, most of it is not reliable. Some of them are, but they measure parts per billion, very small amounts, uh, insignificant, inconsequential. Uh, the other part is, is that it absolutely doesn't cause any cumulative effect. It's a water soluble molecule that moves through the digestive system extremely quickly. It's excreted through the urine, through stools relatively quickly. And there's very minimal, uh, there's, there's no carryover. There's nothing that's moving, uh, accumulating in the body over time. You know, it's an interesting question and I've asked doctors who have put people on non-GMO diets. I remember Emily Lindner, I was speaking at the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. I gave my first talk there in 2006 and then came back uh, relating GMOs to different diseases, which were the topic each year, you know, inflammation and autoimmune disease, cancer, et cetera. So I came back in 2009 to get an award and I brought a video camera and interviewed her and she blew my mind. She said, I put everyone, all of my patients on a non-GMO diet and they all get better. I said, what? I was very skeptical. I said, what percentage? She says, I told you, they all, okay, 98%. So I was like really skeptical. I said, how many patients do you have? And she took about a minute to figure it out and then came back and said, about 5,000. And I said, can I go to your office and interview the patients? She said, sure. So that was the first of my clinical rounds, so to speak. And sure enough, I interviewed the patients and it was astounding. Now, she did other things as well. But at the same time, I started interviewing the farmers who had taken pigs and cows off of the GMOs and noticed changes in two or three days. So in the Emily told me that if someone has anxiety or depression, 
that can clear up almost right away. For asthma and allergies, three to seven days. For digestive disorders, maybe two months, and then she may have to rebuild it over two years. That was her with her regimen, but it's not the same. Like when I when I talked to some people, you know, there was a slower change, and other people it was a faster change. So I can't tell anyone what to predict, but I can say this, when you switch to organic, if you really wanna do this as an experiment, then literally get a spreadsheet together and write down what percentage of organic you had that day, write down your energy level, write down your mood because you know anxiety and depression is gonna be part of it, and write down 100% of your symptoms. All of them, not just the ones you think may be related because you may be surprised and rate them one to 10. And the next day do the same thing. And the next day do the same thing. And go organic for a few weeks if you can, 100% if you can. But in any case, write it down and see what happens. See what happens when you self-report data for a treatment that you think is going to help you improve. I wonder what's going to happen. It's this bad science. How do you avoid GMOs and Roundup in your diet? I mean, is organic enough or is this tricky because we're all the foods, you know, we're, it's in kind of the, the building blocks of a lot of the food we eat, sounds like. Well, it's interesting. Like if you, if you eat something that's non-GMO project verified, they actually make sure that if there's any of those building blocks, they're tested to make, to guarantee or to ver- verify that it's not coming back contaminated above the 0.9% threshold. So there may be some low levels of contamination, but they've done their homework. They continue to do sampling and testing throughout the year. If something is organic, it's not necessarily tested, but it's not allowed to use GMOs or Roundup. So when you look at the glyphosate levels at the responsibletechnology.org report site, you will see that, for example, the oats generally for the non-organic have a very high level of glyphosate. But the oats for the organic, except in one case, which may have been some contamination, it's very little or not at all. So when your negative control comes back as showing a positive, it tells you that there's probably something wrong with your assay. And that's the problem. There, a lot of groups are using these kind of hinky assays that aren't necessarily been vetted, and uh, they're getting data. And they're suggesting that there's contamination when really they're just looking at the noise of the assay. That's Jeffrey Smith's science. Now, why would they be very little? And that's because the Roundup is used so much, 300 million pounds per year in the United States. It's in the air. It's in the rain. It's in water. So some level of contamination is often found in organic so don't expect to have zero, but you do want to minimize it. And so you can, if you eat organic, and if you can't eat organic, at least eat non-GMO and avoid the big glyphosate sponges, then you're doing the best you can. Wait a minute. So what he's saying is there is a safe level? You mean if you minimize it, it's okay? I mean, you know, this is after all, he's claiming this is a deadly poison that contain, that affects every single disease known to mankind and animal kind. <laughs> but so, so first of all, let's talk about this claim that it's in the rain and that it's in the air and all this stuff. Now, 
if you, um, so there was a paper by um, Majeski et al. 2014, that that paper said that they could detect glyphosate in the air adjacent to, well, they could detect glyphosate in the air. And this is a study done by the U.S. Geological Service survey. Uh, you know, they check these things as, you know, as they do. And they could detect 26 nanograms per cubic meter. So 26 billionths of a gram. So think about what a gram is. And now cut that in half <laughs> um, about 1,400 times. And, um, and, uh, and, and you would get down to uh, how much was in a cubic meter. Not much at all. Amazing they could detect that. And that's why this is so problematic. Our detection is so good. Oh, they also neglect to tell you that this measurement was taken three meters from the side of a field where glyphosate was being used. But Smith will never tell you that. He's wanting you to believe that this is happening near your home. I mean, glyphosate does not volatilize like dicamba and other, other uh, chemistries. So it, it, it stays put. So all these claims about it being this pervasive chemical are completely bogus. And when it's showing up in organic food, it's because the assay is flawed or the organic farmer is cheating. And I don't think the organic farmers are cheating. That's, you know, they, they don't roll that way typically. You don't get into organic farming to, to, to do it the hard way and then, and then choose to do it the easy way. Easier way, I should say. Onward. I want to say, Richard, if you if you go out to eat and you go to a wedding or you travel to a country and you have no control or you're in school or you're in a jail and you have no control, don't worry about it because worrying is toxic and the food is toxic. Now you've doubled your toxic load. Just do your best. Don't worry about it. And then try and maximize. We try and teach people tools to make it easier so they can save money, so they can save time on a organic diet. If you go to livehealthybewell.com, which is my podcast, we have the Secret Ingredients movie. We have the Healing from GMOs and Roundup Summit. We have the 90-Day Lifestyle Upgrade, which is about how to make it non-GMO and organic easily. But even if you just go and start buying organic off the shelf, or and even if you don't know how to save the money when you do it, but you're willing to invest in your health and the world in that way, People often notice a life change. Now, not everybody has an online empire built on fear that they profit from to be able to afford eating higher cost food. Most people can't make it meet just on make their ends meet based on conventional groceries that are amazingly inexpensive for what they are. And to scare people away from their food, tell them they need to be investing in themselves by spending more money on the food, maybe foregoing retirement or forgiving uh, other aspects of health care. This is what Smith's toxic words do. He scares people from perfectly good food. In the movie Secret Ingredients, I took the fi my, my uh, film crew to an environmental uh, medicine conference and interviewed some doctors who traditionally tell their patients to switch to organic. But I, what they talked about with us is that once someone loses their autoimmune disease symptoms or loses this or feels better, or the pain goes away, the fibromyalgia goes away, but then they cheat. Either they just 
forget about it or they travel. In some cases, it's just one meal. Some cases, it's a, it's a, it's a vacation. In some cases, they just go off the wagon, so to speak. Their symptoms come back and that verifies it to them. And that becomes the most convincing experience because they got clean, they got better, they changed their diet, and it's getting worse again. Then they know. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes perfect sense. Because when you infect people with false information, you inoculate them at at conferences of credulity, uh, giving them false information, scaring them about their food. they, They then will change their mind when you take that stimulus away. You could do the test. You could do a double-blinded test where you tell people, uh, here's your diet for this week, how do you feel? And I guarantee you that if you didn't tell them what they were eating, your uh, answers would homogenize and you would see no significant effect between the two different diets. It's all safe food. It's all safe food. But Smith, he preys on human cognitive bias. Uh, the, the fact that people who he's appealing to are going to the crazy conferences, are going to see him hang on his words. And when that happens, it appeals to their, their, their biases, but also their identity. Because this is what I eat and the lifestyle I choose. And this is people who make a lifestyle around food. Okay, like, you know, all I eat is organic. Okay, then if you tell them something is not organic, of course, they're going to scoff at it. Or, of course, it's going to make them feel bad. Those studies have already been done. So it's Smith playing into and preying upon cognitive bias or scaring people about food. If I go out to eat at a restaurant, what's the likelihood that I'm going to be eating uh, something with Roundup or glyphosate in it or you know GMOs? You know, if you start shopping with the... Uh with the support from the, from the tools at Responsible Technology at Oryx, so you learn which ingredients are. Most good restaurants will cook with natural full whole ingredients. If you go to a fast food place, their processed foods into the door. They get their processed foods, which they reheat or cook. So they're going to be pretty much guaranteed to have GMOs and Roundup. But if you go to a place that cooks from scratch, then if you want to avoid the GMOs, there's going to be some hidden ones, the sugar, the, the oil that the oil, the may have soy, corn, cotton, or canola oil, and the soy sauce, things like that. But other than those few hidden ingredients, the, the salad dressing, if you avoid the corn, corn tortillas and corn, and you avoid things that have soy you'll, and potatoes, you'll be able to figure out what to order. If you have, you know, Fish, if it's wild caught, it's not going to be fed pellets of genetically engineered soy as it's being raised. So there's ways of navigating it. And I have whole videos on how to do that on the site. So I'd say some people will say, well, when I go out to eat, I'm more loose. And when I'm at home, I'm very tight. And other people go, I'm starting at home and then I'm going to learn how to do it. I I know in my area, I know which restaurants serve organic, which restaurants serve serve farm to table and they're my go-to. So the easy trick from Smith, avoid sugar and corn products, avoid soybean products, all the associated oils. So, you know, the bottom line is eat what you like. Don't let Smith or anybody else scare you away from your choices. It seems like most restaurants though, you know, that get their food from companies like Cisco, et cetera, they're going to have just by definition, the stuff coming in is going to have GMO and, uh, you know, and Roundup and stuff in it. It seems like it'd be very difficult 
if you want to eat out with any consistency to avoid this stuff. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't want to order oats or, you know, I used to have oatmeal in the mornings when I traveled and I don't have that unless I bring my own packet of organic instant oatmeal if I want to do that. Certain things you want to avoid because they have high uh, Roundup content. If you can get away without eating wheat, that's been sprayed with Roundup. So if you can do that, that would be helpful. (laughs) You know, I would have pegged Smith as an oatmeal guy. (laughs) No doubt. Um, Give me a bowl of warm, mushy stuff. Anyway, um, there is no Roundup in anything. Roundup is a formulation of glyphosate and its surfactants. And when you look in food with very high-level detection, you can detect the presence of some level of glyphosate. This is, again, parts per billion, seconds in 32 years. The hummus was going to have the chickpeas that are sprayed. So you you can figure it out. And the thing is, there's those people that are super sensitive and they're going to be so they're going to be writing down everything like their pens smoking by now because they get they get reactions that they can tell. So they're going to know if they've cheated a little bit. There's others that are working on conditions where they won't necessarily see an up and down on a day to day basis, but they're committed to see if this diet changes their conditions. Then there's those that don't have many conditions. They seem to have a good life and, you know, not a lot of chronic problems. They may be less likely to follow any of this advice. Uh, but they may still want to try it at home to see if they get the energy and the clarity of mind because forgetfulness and other things have been also linked to, um, you know, not having an organic diet. You've seen the pattern at this point. We're an hour and 48 minutes into this, and it's the same thing over and over again, that if you don't eat an organic diet, you're going to have problems. So what is Smith really trying to sell here? And this is the point. He makes a lot of money by pushing a certain type of production system. And that's fine, but he's doing it with lies. And that's where we really have to draw the line. How soon after uh, changing your diet over significantly to not include GMOs and to avoid Roundup, do do people feel better? What's the average time? Like I said, you know, when I talked about Emily Lindner, she said uh, anxiety and depression right away, allergies and food sensitivities. Three to seven days, got digestive disorders, about two months, and then it can be rebuilt over two years. But that's not everyone's experience. That's not all the practitioners' experiences. And it really, like in the film Secret Ingredients, I was we were talking to one family, and it was they were a mess. They had five members of the family with 21 chronic conditions. The mother had to quit work. She was disabled. She was pretty much paralyzed. The son who had was on the autistic spectrum. Another one had constipation and mood swings. Another one had eczema all over his body. The father had a breast cancer, a breast tumor. And she decided that maybe it's the food. So she started studying food. She's a very smart person, type A, actually brilliant. And so she started experimenting on the family. Took out gluten, took out soy, took out dyes and whatnot, commercial dairy. And she was noticing that the symptoms were getting better, but she was still managing each of the categories. They were improving, but not gone. Then she learned about GMOs and Roundup, put the family on all organic. And she said, within about six weeks, the stuff that was very visible, like the skin conditions, the things that you could easily see were gone. Then three months was another level. And within six months, they had eliminated their chronic conditions in the family. Okay. Now, if you're not seeing red right now, 
you're not alive. Here, Smith is making the claim that diet can cure autism, that diet can cure breast cancer, that diet is uh, is adjusting these other chronic conditions that these people uh, suffer from. Sure, diet can have some effects on some of this, especially people who have a very poor diet to begin with. There's no doubt about that, that people who are not getting adequate nutrition or have other issues, great. You know, I believe there's something there but it has nothing to do with the organic side. It could be conventional food too, conventional produce too. Eating a whole foods diet where you're cooking things that are, or preparing foods that are closest to their source without going through you know, Nabisco and whoever else to be put into a box or can is the best way to eat and get adequate nutrition. We know that, but it has nothing to do with their genetic origin. It has nothing to do with how they're produced, whether it's with con- conventional or organic agriculture. And this was an interesting experiment because she had already isolated all these other things and taken them out of the diet. So all that was left was switching to organic. And it took, the, the, the sun is no longer on the autistic spectrum. I mean, it was that, she was, there was two suns in our film that are no longer on the autistic spectrum when they switched. It's certainly not gonna happen to all autistic boys or, or girls, but it did happen in the two that were in our film. And I was going to break from tradition and and use some words that I never use on this podcast. And, you know, this makes me so angry because here's what Smith does. He makes a claim that is false, absolutely false. The diet did not change their autism. Autism has genetic components, potentially some environmental overlays, but this is unacceptable. Then he does his weasel. Well, it doesn't always happen with everybody. So, you know, and because it doesn't work. And so people who try it and say, well, um, you know, uh, Smith said that this would work. Well, I, well, of course, I said it doesn't happen with everybody. There's always an exit door for this guy. He and Stephanie Seneff have both said that going with eating organic can cure autism. They both have said it. It is 100% patently false. It's offensive. And people who, are in, who have autism and families who are navigating a child on the, on the spectrum, they deserve much better. And remember, this is a highly credible scientific podcast that now is spreading the like really horrendous false information that is going to uh, change the way families are working with the proper ways and the the known ways to deal with the different parts of the spectrum and the behaviors associated with them. This is egregious. So, and then there's doctors that say explaining why, like David Perlmutter, who wrote Grain Brain and Brain Maker, he explains the brain connection. And Michelle Perra, who's the pediatrician, talks about the experience she had in her uh, clinic with children. So it becomes pretty convincing. So if you're not yet convinced to eat organic, just watch the movie Secret Ingredients at livehealthybewell.com. And that's the, and that's also the, the movie to get your friends and your relatives to switch to organic. I know people came up to me and said, I've been trying for years to get my spouse to change. Or I've been trying for years to get my, my kids to change or my parents to change. And I showed them the film and now they're more fanatic than I am. So that that's why we wrote that, we created that film. Yeah, no, that, that's excellent. And one last thing. So uh, there's no law to require foods that contain Roundup or that are GMO to label themselves as such, right? Well, there's a 
fake law that USDA put in place that you can basically ignore it. It doesn't really, it hasn't been enforced yet. It's going to confuse you with what's on the label. So you want to look for organic. And if you can't get organic, at least get non-GMO project verified. But the, the law, the labeling scheme in the USDA is basically written by Monsanto. Oh, boy. A company that hasn't existed for three years is dictating the labeling policy, right? Well, let's go back. Um, actually, at the time, Monsanto and all other companies that created uh, seeds, they fought this vigorously. They didn't create it. They, they fought it vigorously. The only reason that it even exists is because of certain activists that drew up these laws and demanded them in their states. And when you started to see individual states like Vermont and other states start to adopt these labeling laws, and every state was different, it would make it impossible for food manufacturers to be able to accurately label things because you'd have to have food labeled for distribution in specific states because every state's laws were different. And then you would have to set up an infrastructure to monitor and test all the food and, uh, and, and verify whether or not it was from genetically engineered, contained ingredients from genetically engineered crops. This would, have been, this would have created an entirely new federal infrastructure in the cost passed on to consumers with zero benefit. There's nothing to protect you from. There's nothing there. It's not magic. There's, these are the crops that are producing the plants have an extra gene that we understand. The ingredients don't contain, typically, don't contain that gene or any of its uh, products. Oils, sugar, it's oil and sugar. It doesn't have any genetic material in it. Maybe some in things like cornstarch, but, but anyway. Um, bottom line is, is that the labeling thing was a sham. And folks like Smith got their way. They got the U.S. government, starting in 2022, to start putting a label on food saying bioengineered. And so it's, it's um, you, they have the label. But Smith's, his interesting position is, well, just buy organic, buy a non-GMO project. That's what I used to say. That's what I used to say. That's what the scientists and the academics and the folks in the big companies said. They said, if you don't trust it, buy organic, buy non-GMO project. You already have a label. Use it. Smith and others wanted to have a label on genetically engineered uh, crops, on ingredients from genetically engineered crops, because they wanted to start boycotts and, and have other ways to single out those products to get people to avoid them. And they stated that. That's very clear. We're almost done. I'd love to finish before two hours. Let's see what happens. I also want to add one thing, Richard. You asked about how dangerous GMOs are getting. And I cut that conversation short because I wanted to finish up about the food. But there's something that's, and I started talking about the microbiome. On the webpage called protectnaturenow.com, we have a 16-minute film. It's my fifth film and my shortest. It's called Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle. And in there, we talk about a genetically engineered bacterium that was two weeks away from being released outdoors, which, according to the expert we interviewed, could have theoretically ended terrestrial plant life on the planet. There's another one that was slated for release and blocked by a quartz, which could have ended up theoretically changing weather patterns. 
No. Just horrible. How? Okay, so the guest, the host, is finally pushing back. <laughs> he finally asked Smith, "How? How? How is the? How are these? Uh, how is this genetically engineered microbe going to destroy all terrestrial plant life? And how is it going to change weather patterns?" So let's see what Smith's well-articulated and well-researched answer really is. These are pretty serious things. There was also genetically engineered virus that was up to 24 times more more deadly than the current virus, the global virus, and that they made it airborne in a laboratory because they could. You know, it's like, what? What are you doing that for? You could decimate the U.S., the human population. So how do you make a virus airborne? Well, they do that already. You see, this is Smith's whole thing. The ambiguity no good solid references, uh, a court somewhere, a lab somewhere, no solid uh, discussion of citations or specifics. It's all ambiguous. But he's moving the goalpost from genetically engineered food, or well, ingredients from genetically engineered food, to now a new fear of microbes. And no better time to do that than during a global pandemic. So my guess is he probably has something for you to do, a place for you to go, or something to sell you to solve this problem. Hmm. We have a program called Protect Nature Now, which is designed to stop the gain-of-function work on these potentially pandemic pathogens in labs, but probably more important, to stop the release of any genetically modified microbe outdoors. Because even though there's these bad actors, I mean, well-meaning scientists created, you'll see in the film, it was a brilliant idea, let's release it to farms. They can turn their crop stubble into alcohol and make money and run their tractors. Let's distribute it to all the farmers in America. If that had happened, it could have been a cataclysm for the planet. Well-meaning, just not well-informed. It had passed all the EPA tests, but they weren't good enough. But the microbiome turns out to be so complex. And the fact that if you genetically engineer a microbe, it can swap genes with so many other microbes, there's a trillion different types, that we are risking an existential threat by allowing gene-edited microbes to be released. So what we're doing now at the Institute for Responsible Technology, we've inaugurated a new global movement, Protect Nature Now. We have more than 50 organizations around the world as part of our ally structure. And we are contacting thousands of elected officials and media around the world. In fact, if you go to Protect Nature Now and you watch the film, right next to the film is a way to click and take action. You enter your your own address and all of your elected officials populate, all of your local media populate. And in a single click, you can send them whatever that latest asset is that we've loaded into the program, whether it's about gain of function, whether it's about microbes, whether it's about the need to protect soil microbes in order to sequester carbon, to to draw down, to, to reverse climate change. All of that depends on the microbes and all of that depends on us not releasing the genetically engineered varieties so that we allow the natural varieties to do the heavy lifting. So protectnaturenow.com. I recommend that people go and watch the short video. I recommend that people go there and take action. And please donate if you can, ideally on a recurring basis, because this is an urgent situation. We need to open up offices around the world. We need to create new laws around the world, international treaties, 
It's on that level. And very few people know about it. And we're, we're the tip of the spear right now. And this is a common trope among these kinds of snake oil salesmen is, well, they've got a big problem, but very few people know about it. But you can solve the problem by sending money, hopefully on a recurring basis. It, it's the same thing that others have used, uh, Dr. Don Huber and others. You know, we, we know of this molecular Bigfoot, this problem that exists, and you need to take action. You know, the, his letter ended up with Tom Vilsack. Uh, he's, you know, anyway, we won't even talk about that right now. We're gone too long. But you see the pattern. Here's a problem that I think exists that nobody else can apparently see. All the academics, all the conservative governments around the world that have very strict laws regarding genetic engineering. Um, uh, you know, you can't even use gene editing in Europe to solve certain human diseases. And you think they're going to just be releasing genetically engineered microbes? The genetically engineered microbe corner of his portfolio is because a lot of companies are looking at ways to make bacteria better, to be able to fix nitrogen, to be able to better populate the rhizosphere around plant roots, to make mineral nutrition more um, well, not just mineral nutrition, to make plant nutrition and water uptake more efficient. These engineered microbes will be a huge benefit to the farm. And, of course, Smith wants to fight that because the companies that are doing this are, um, are large companies, typically, not always. But they're also going to be skirting organic standards because the organic standards won't care about this kind of thing, right? They're just about synthetic chemicals and genetically engineered plants. And to have a rhizosphere that's modified to make plants grow better, that is perfect for organic farmers. I bet would be widely, widely adopted. But it's, um, this is the next tip of the spear, right? When, when someone who has no expertise is claiming to be the tip of the spear, that should make red flags go off everywhere because it means they're trying to sell you something or push some sort of agenda. And Smith has created an infrastructure here for you to harass your lawmakers into pushing the agenda that keeps him alive and well and, uh, and well-employed. Yeah, they're in Europe. Are they any better with uh, GMOs and with you know various pesticides, or just as bad as the U.S.? It's better, but not good enough. So there's three categories: there's the food, there's the pesticides, and then there's the microbes. As far as the foods go, they don't grow GMOs there. Um, most of the countries have made have banned it. There's some growing in Spain, maybe one or two in Eastern Europe, but it, by and large, they don't grow GMOs there. But they do allow it in the food supply, but the food companies committed to not allow it. They have a more rigorous labeling program by far. So companies refuse to use GMOs or they'll have to label it. And the people there know much more about it than people in the United States. So it's not illegal to eat GMOs. It's not illegal to sell it. It's just not done, except in animal feed. So the most of the animal products do have um, GMOs from the feed side. I'll be brief. There's nothing in the feed that stays in the product of the animal, the meat, milk, and eggs. There's nothing that can, that's there that can tell or, or at least signal that it came from a genetically engineered plant or a product from a genetically engineered plant. This isn't magic, people. This is science. And you can measure what's there. And, and there's nothing magical about a genetically engineered plant that moves through the 
food products of animals. As far as pesticides go, there's a greater assessment protocol for pesticides, but it's still not strong enough. They don't evaluate the whole the whole formulation, just the so-called active ingredient. They don't look at it's it's better, but it's not perfect. And it's it, if it were stronger as it was appropriate, there'd be a lot of them taken off the market. As far as microbes go or gene editing, here's an interesting thing. I told you earlier that the biotech industry has convinced governments that gene editing is safe and easy and clean. They're trying to convince the EU, the UK. They're trying to convince Canada. They've already convinced the US, Australia, Argentina, Japan, Brazil. Well, the EU said, no, 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 gene editing will be treated just like GMOs. And the biotech industry freaked. So they're working with people they have on the inside and in academia to try and overcome the EU's laws to change the laws so that gene editing gets a free pass. That would mean everything that has DNA would be targeted by this cheap and easy technology, and we could replace nature in a generation. We could end up creating all sorts of genomic combinations that you can't recall, and it would be like a Wild West or a gold rush into the genome to try and get as many of patents out there and new organisms out there without any government oversight. So that could be an absolute disaster. It's better right now in the EU than the U.S., and we're trying to keep it that way in the EU and to make it even stronger all around the world. And if anyone's freaking, as he says, about uh, gene editing policy in the EU, it's EU farmers and it's EU academic scientists and a number of people in different EU governments. Because this is a great technology that can do a lot of things and creates a product that's no different than that that can be derived through traditional breeding, just faster. And it allows for agricultural innovation to happen on a much tighter timescale. So Smith, he goes to, well, the EU is such a great place because it doesn't allow this. Um, sadly, they're going to be significantly behind. He also calls into question the the intent and the knowledge of scientists in Brazil, Japan, and another number of other countries in the world, which I think is really sad. Well, very good. Well, Jeff, you mentioned resources earlier, but just to recap to the end here, what do you recommend people do to start their journey of learning about GMOs and Roundup and things like that? You know, your people, your, your listeners are listeners to podcasts. So and I'm not going to give this guy the opportunity to spread his endorsements of his own silly empire that simply collects money to spread false information and scare people away from food. Now, this has gone on way too long, but as they say, you know, it takes, uh, uh, you know, 10 minutes of, of, uh, of education to debunk one minute of BS. And this is no different. He's allowed to go on and do this gish gallop of danger and, and, and risk in food that doesn't exist. And it's, what's really bothers me is that this particular podcast gave him this window with very little, uh, almost none, no critical pushback. And the only time they gave pushback, he didn't answer the question. <laughs> the bottom line is, is that this kind of thing can't, it should not be allowed to exist without, without correct and proper and appropriate criticism. And that's the intention of this particular episode of Talking Biotech Podcast. It, it's not to malign Smith as much. Well, yeah, it is a bit. But it's not to go after the podcast by any means, other than I wish they would use their filter more effectively and their platform more effectively. 
because they have very good content in other ways, and they have now put a torpedo into the side of that enterprise. And if the host and the, the folks who run this podcast have, have any sense of decency, they will remove the Jeffrey Smith episode because it served to misinform people that need information. And an educated and an audience that's coming here for good information that now has been uh, treated to bad information. And I guarantee you, most of them won't listen to Smith. They'll turn off this podcast from this point on. I know I probably won't listen to it again because I can't trust the information that's there. So thank you for listening to an ultra-long marathon, 2 minute and 11 second, whatever, this is two hours of uh, Talking Biotech podcast. I wanted to split it into two different episodes, but at the same time, you need to feel uh, his, 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 his misinformation and disinformation all the way through. It's really sad that this can continue to happen, especially during the time of a global pandemic when we need to be embracing science better. In a time when so many people, even in the United States, go hungry every single day. And we should be celebrating the abundance of cheap and affordable food that allows us to have such a good quality of life here. And we should be honoring the people that grow it, the people who pick it, the people who are involved in its production. Because uh, we really do live in amazing times with the best food source in human history, the most diversity and most availability. Thanks to genetics and plant breeders. So thank you very much for listening to a marathon version of the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort recommend guests, and support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, 
sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.